Welcome to iRise's Rage Podcast. This is season four, The Catalyst. I am your guest podcast host today. My name is Ramona Beltran. I'm an associate professor in the Graduate School of Social Work, and I'm super excited to be talking with our guest today, Mark Gonzalez. Before I get into the interview, I wanted to just build a little context for what we're going to be talking about today. So for a lot of us, 2020 was a year full of struggle, strife, and perseverance as we navigated unrelenting isolation and impacts of COVID-19, we know this is continuing, civil unrest, and demands for social and racial justice, and an egregiously divisive political environment that rendered daily assaults on our hope for unity and democracy. For many minoritized communities, specifically Black, Indigenous, and people of color or BIPOC, these experiences have been compounded by complex legacies of historical and intergenerational trauma. As a woman of color, I can say, I've seen this in my life and I have felt it alive in my body over the last year, solid. The way that my social media timelines have read like obituaries, or the constant calls for prayers for loved ones suffering from COVID-19, or major losses and struggles related to racial justice is a daily reminder that these legacies are ongoing, yet inextricably connected to a history of unjust access to the right to live fully and well. Yet, as we collectively remember that which is behind us and still with us, it is also important to imagine and create a different world that is ahead of us. So our conversation is gonna explore what we can envision beyond these struggles toward a future of imagination and creativity. This is our opportunity to ex exclaim, we are so much more than our trauma. And I hope it will give us some inspiration and a moment of collective exhalation. It's my absolute honor to introduce you to our speaker today, to our guest, Mark Gonzalez. I'm so lucky to know him, an amazing visionary, and to be inspired by his work for, I don't know what, Mark, about 15 years now. <laughs> and I know that you all will be too. So Mark Gonzalez is a father, an empathy technologist, and chair of the Department of the Future. He'll be talking to us about his work with Department of the Future and set this context for understanding futurism and how we can build with imagination and creativity. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. So happy to have you here. So let's just get into it. Mark, can you tell us about the vision of Department of the Future and help us build a foundation for understanding futurism and imagination? Yes. So great first question, which I think is always the most important question whenever having a conversation, which is to define the terms you're using. And so if we're going to be talking about futurism, I know it's becoming a buzzword in, in a lot of different spaces. It ignites ideas of possibility and imagination, but futurism as a field actually comes out of different places. So there's a history of the futurism in architectural field, I believe really coming out of Italy in the 1920s and 1930s, really looking at a kind of post-industrialism and what could emerge from that. Uh, you have, for those who think futurism is just a fluffy word, there's the masters of strategic foresight that the University of Houston, the University of Toronto, Canada, now 
apply, which is a master's of science degree. You have now in creativity, we often hear the term speculative futures, uh, especially coming out of Afrofuturism and other creative fields that are really saying, how can we use fiction and speculative fiction to imagine realities uh, beyond our current one? And then you have the field that I consider myself a part of, which is the applied futures field, which is really looking at these kind of a trend, which is, oh, futurism is both the science in terms of how do we understand the relationship between past, present, future in a non-only linear manner, saying there's many ways of understanding time. And so what is our relationship to what is what will be and what could be? How can I access and ignite imagination to look at the trend of where we are going and saying, oh, where could we make detours, pivots, hit the eject button on the on the ship, if you will, and end up in completely different scenarios and different realities? And then the applied futures part being like, okay, now that I have that imagination, it's a blueprint. How do I reverse engineer to where I am now so I can begin both inventing and implementing the building blocks that get me to the world that I want to live in? So that way, the future isn't only about having a better prediction of what will come, because I don't want to just know what's going to happen in the future so I can say, oh, in 10 years, this will happen. In 20 years, this will happen. Um, because if we use that is uh, the only definition of futurism, then we know uh, on our current trajectory within 500 to 5,000 years, human beings will be extinct. I think limiting futurism to that type of reality where it's like, oh, this is how we know when we're going to die is a very limited understanding of futurism. I very much like to think about, oh, this is what we can dream and envision, imagine, and then this is what we can begin to design, build, and iterate to get us there. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how is Department of the Future part of that designing, building, and iterating? Uh, great question. So uh, I think from a technical uh, status, we are a technology firm. And a key part of our introduction to the work we do in the world is broadening the definition of technology. So we often think of technology as the things we're talking on now, our laptop, our digital devices, maybe our cell phone. Uh, but technology is anything that systemizes a process. Hmm. Uh, and so we know that the printing press was technology. For me, the dinner table is one of the oldest connection technologies uh, known to human beings. We know that story is the original empathy technology, creating immersive realities and illusions of identity that we could see ourselves in that allowed us to suspend our own uh, perceptions, bias, judgment, bigotry, and actually begin to see life from a completely different understanding of another human being that has existed for uh, thousands of years. Um, and when you begin to expand technology to that definition, uh, you began to then look at the world as like, oh, wow, there has always been wisdom and invention that has been useful to human beings. And we are at a tipping point as societies and species at this very much moment in human history, where what some people call the fourth industrial revolution is to me really the end of the industrial revolution. 
every economy as we know it is ending the way that work used to be done. Uh, and we have a chance in this moment then to say, oh, if we know that, then we know that we need to look towards new ways of being, new technologies, new interaction, especially in a globally interconnected world that COVID reminded us all that, wow, even the illness of someone on another part of the planet can rapidly impact any of us. Maybe this idea of distance and separation is actually part of the solution. What are the technologies that allow us to see the connection between all the parts of the globe? And how can we lean in that to create a more interconnected and balanced world? And for me, Department of the Future looks at that question and actually then also dives into, okay, now what are the wisdom sources across human existence for the 150,000 years, if not longer, that we've been here? That can be a benefit to that question because often we're trying to answer questions with only 1% of the wisdom that is available to humanity. And that to me is what we try to do. We try to expand and broaden the definition of wisdom and invite people to see all the wisdom that is possible uh, and all the wisdom that people walk with and then say, okay, now how do we use that to actually build something more better? You make it sound so simple <laughs> and so elegant. I was just um, thinking as you were talking about this piece that I'm, it's a commentary piece that I'm trying to write with two indigenous sisters about anti-racist work in social work research. And we wanted to do something a little bit different, like imagine what was beyond anti-racism. Let's imagine what the world is like when we won't need anti-racism as a framework anymore. And I'll tell you what, on my own, it is nearly impossible to imagine. And so I'm thinking a lot about, you know, what you said, you, you use the terms collective and collaborations a lot in your work and partnerships and how important it is to build and expand and nurture those partnerships. So I'm wondering how Department of the Future thinks about partnerships, collaborations, co-creations in terms of considering a future when responding to racial injustice? Ah, so that's a great question and a very relevant and timely question. So we are collaborating with a variety of about 30 to 40 companies across Eastern Pennsylvania uh, to actually in what's called ARC, the anti-racism cohort. Uh, and what it is, is we help them um, specifically the Forbes Fund and uh, the CEO of the Forbes Fund, uh, Fred Brown, uh, who's the first uh, black man, I, I believe, to be the chair of the Forbes Fund. What began as a conversation on sister cities between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Sousse, Tunisia, North Africa, uh, and really looking at how can we move beyond sister city relationships that are very surface in terms of cities, uh, government signing uh, a piece of uh, paper that says, oh, we like one another and never doing anything, to really saying, oh, we're both cities uh, looking for new economies that are economies of the last centuries are long gone, that 
we're deal, uh, dealing with generational brain drain in terms of youth graduating and leaving right away. We're both uh, dealing with climate crisis and how it's impacting us on different parts of the continent, uh, but we're not sharing how we're solving those challenges because we're on different continents, but we have shared challenges. So can we then look at a shared future? That actually then led to uh, more in-depth conversations as the conversation on race accelerated in America with, you know, George Floyd's murder and prior to that, Breonna Taylor's murder and prior to that, a death every 36 hours at the hands of police murder uh, for multiple years, uh, resulting in the flashpoint of America saying we have a long overdue conversation we need to have. Um, in that, people began saying, well, you know, we, we believe Black Lives Matter, which is an important statement. But we actually pushed a little bit more, which was, that's a great statement, but what does Black Lives Matter behavior look like? And so from that question actually became the core question, what does that look like it is a behavior? Because we often think about things in terms of a no or, or a negation. We're like, what does this construct actually look like? Um, and so we built actually uh, the, the question of how does the city create an anti-racist culture of belonging? And we realized that that's not a single individual question and that's not a single institution question. That's not even a sector question. That's a multi-sector place-based question that you try to build a cohort of institutions and individuals asking it together in a deep dive and exploration. And so we've actually spent the last six months doing that and then had about 30 to 40 companies sign on to a 10 month commitment to organizational culture shift where each company agrees to do an environmental data scan in terms of everything from investors to C-suite to executive teams, hires, buyers, vendor contracts, and then overlaying it with the city's demographics, but also doing a qualitative data assessment in terms of what does the culture of work look like, and then each one trying to create an individualized improvement plan. So for me, that is one way, if you will, of what does anti-racism uh, work look like in this era that is meaningful, uh, that moves beyond the surface and begins to move us towards the future. And by begins to move us towards the future is for me the key part, because I think sometimes we forget that stories are iterative. You know, you don't get to the last chapter by starting the first page. And that this is the first page. When we had a conversation, the Yale World Fellows Alumni Network has what is called the Good Society Forum. We did a conversation on COVID and racial equity back in, I think it was April of 2020. And it was between myself, it was some colleagues in South Africa, I believe a member in Europe and I'm forgetting which country specifically, and then hosted by Nizamuddin at the UK. One of the things came up was what does racial equity look like in times of COVID? And people were bringing up all the health disparities. And one of the things I brought up at the end for me was I said, you know what? It, it shows to me how limited our imagination is where racial equity is where people of color can die at the same rate as white people. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that's right. that's not the win for anyone. Right. I was like, that's a horrible win. And for me, then when we talk about kind of racial equity and futurism, is I think of, of it in a different way. I think of it as when when the bigotry and bias of human identity and this maze of identities that have been built onto a hierarchy of supremacies where the color of your skin, the who you love, uh, the way we pray can literally affect your quality of life and your life expectancy in dramatic manners. When that has been completely removed, that that uh, early grade and, and, and constant violence, and a human being then can share their talents and their brilliance and their gifts without having to deal with constant micro and macro aggressions. What type of inventions start to be created? What type of wisdom you know, thrives in that space? Mm. Uh, how do relationships in societies look like when we're no longer having to spend hours just dealing with like <laughs> coming off the rage of the the latest like yo man that that was really just bigoted and hurtful and i've now got to spend the next three to four hours if not three to four days like being like coming down it's like when that's no longer even in any part of our daily life what can we actually do together and that's to me though the thing I always come back to is that uh, is that you know uh, racism and white supremacy and the many forms of supremacy uh, that exist on this planet rob us of the collective genius that human beings can create together. Agreed. How does Department of the Future imagine a world beyond anti-racism? I mean, you are getting to it here in your comments just leading up to this, but I'm, I'm wondering if from the work that you've done so far, if you have reflections on imaginations from the, the work that you've done in community and in partnership, what, what would it look like? I think I think I really want to elevate the work of John Powell's work on Othering and Belonging, the Othering Belonging Institute. Uh, because I think that that word, which is really centered with me, which is how I actually ended up finding his work, which was um, what does it mean, feel like, look like to truly belong? Hmm. And that for me really is what that future looks like of when anti-racism is the anchor foundation, uh, if you will, of like, we will not accept this. So that way, um, pluralism can thrive. Is that you really get into the question of like, oh, what does what does it look like to truly belong? You know, for for all of us, you know, to use the uh, um, uh, the framework from Chiapas of building a world in which all worlds can fit. Yes. You know, I, I think of it, that to me is the future. Uh, and I think of that in, in terms of, again, of, oh, this is, this is that imagining. You know, I think then it's up to each, because I'm also not a fan of one reality and one person's imagination then becoming the dominant, you know, the idea of a, of a single narrative. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. I think in that for me then, but having that is just um, the shared agreements and the shared values that then people say, okay, now what do we build together? What do our schools look like? What do our architectures look like? Uh, what does our economy look like? What do our interactions look like when belonging is the core value of society? Yes. Um, that makes so much sense. I can like feel it. <laughs> you know, I could, I, I just get this sensation of what does it mean? And I don't think inclusion, exclusion are the right words, but what does it mean when, when we're not just comparing ourselves or looking at other people to determine how they're different from, from us, how they might harm us and how we can keep ourselves safe which I think is part of, you know, it's, it's part of what we're trying to do to heal from those daily, that daily barrage of just assaults on our identities. It's like, how do I keep myself safe? How do I heal? Um, but, but I can feel this, what does it mean when there is just this belonging and this possibility for many worlds at the same time? Yes, and I think this is also though where we can actually begin to, you know, one, have an anti-racist culture of belonging and that it's a, it's a core value. Mm. And then also lean into the expanding that to um, belonging on a multi-identity level. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that, uh, you know, our, our flattened understandings of history often do is, um, for me, belonging means there are no disposable people or disposable identities. Mm. And I think the thing that we have to also look at it when we talk about, um, you know, it's, it's a, a really interesting thing. Like Grace Lee Boggs used to, uh, in, in, in the first conversation I ever had with her, uh, a, a brilliant elder was around quantum physics. You know, and I came uh, trying to talk to understand uh, um, how to be a better educator uh, and respond to community needs. <laughs> you know, and she's like, well, I've been thinking about second, third, fourth, fifth dimensions. And I'm like, what, 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 <laughs> where? And she's like, no, she's like, you know, it's important because our understanding of change is rooted in two dimension and understanding that it's my way or your way. She's like, that's a two dimensional world. She's like, in a three-dimensional world, is no, we need a revolution. We need cycles. She's like, there's fourth and fifth dimensions in terms of quantum physics. So how do our ideas of what is change and how does it occur shift when we understand uh, physics, time, and reality in that way? And I say that because when we think of uh, hierarchies, we often think of the hierarchy as, as having no violence at the top. You know, and so if we think of, of gender hierarchies of, 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 uh, of men and women, you know, it's a, it's a gender identity hierarchies. Um, I think very much about the industrial revolution and what it did to the construct of masculinity, you know, and very much men's worth being very much connected to what you can produce, you know, and the wealth that comes from what you can produce. And therefore your only purpose then is to be a body, is to be a machine, where then you no longer have a place for emotion. You no longer have a place for ritual. You no longer have a place for love. 
you know and so even though you know it, it in some ways it, it comes back to james baldwin the price of the ticket you know it's like the price of, of the price of being at the top you know is that i i do think about that to me and belonging explodes that pyramid and that idea you know that oh if you give up all these things this is what you'll get at the top and when you get to the top you realize this was a horrible deal mm. <laughs> you know that you're like no 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 we don't want that you know we're, we're going to look at a, a circle instead of the triangle <laughs> you know we're going to look at different geometric shapes and we're, we're going to find out what emerges in that space yeah yeah that's why it's good to look to our indigenous relatives and ancestors and all of our ancestors for some of those ideas to come back to as well. So I want to be thoughtful about your time and also this, just the juiciness of the things that you've given us today even. And I, I think I'll finish with these last questions before we bring in some of your poetic words to close out. But my question is, what makes you excited to be alive right now? Hmm. So what makes me excited to be alive is, A, we are possibly, so we are recording this on March 5th on 2021, which is nearly one year to the date of the global shutdown uh, that mm -hmm. began of COVID with the spikes in Italy. And so the first thing that, that makes me excited to be alive is to see a possible light and opening, you know, to a global shutdown that affected humanity in a way that was never seen before. And to see my 84-year-old father, you know, get ready to get his second vaccine, to hey. see other relatives I know doing the same, to see teachers starting to get those same things that makes me excited to be alive, you know, to know, oh, there, there is a momentum building. What makes me excited to be alive is even though we receive stories of selfishness, of anti-masking, of other things on a daily basis, I also see within that people who took dramatic steps to try to take care of people that they don't even know. Yeah. People who weren't even in their neighborhood were uh, in the city on the other side of the world of like, I need to do these actions because this is going to help people stay alive. That makes me excited that human beings were able to activate a part of them that it, it often actually lied dormant or been intentionally extinguished, which was our ability to care for one another. And as I said, we received a lot of news about the other but I do want to uh, highlight that that was present too, you know, yeah. that, that we showed up in, in very amazing ways. It makes me excited also in the early shutdowns from, I think, March to June, the things that we thought were not possible that we talked would take 30 to 40 years, suspension of standardized testing, a transforming of hotels into subsidized homeless shelters in order to provide care for uh, vulnerable populations. Uh, we saw societies mobilize in a way that we thought couldn't be done. And what it showed us was that it actually can, 
And I think there's something really powerful that makes me excited is we saw instance institutions that we thought were completely rigid become fluid yes. uh, in ways that were not possible in at least in my generation that I was like, this is something we need to remember that this is possible yes. for them to be fluid. Now, what can we do from a non-crisis, non-extinction level event yes. uh, a threat? Can we do that also in, the, in, in a more positive manner? So those types of things on a larger level. On a smaller level, I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and though they make me excited every day <laughs> of what is possible. And I was like, whoa. I mean, we are... Um, you know, I'm in cohorts with the other futurists around the world. And one of the things I always say is every parent is a futurist, uh, whether they know it or not, because they are literally cultivating what the future of human society and our species is going to look like. Now, the children have agency and will continue to grow, but we have a critical role in the next iteration of our species. <laughs> And I was like, that's a, that makes me excited on every day. You know, it terrifies me at the same time, which I'm saying, especially when you're like, oh, I'm doing this, doing this. And then they remind you that they come out, uh, they come with their own out the box, you know, emotions and genetics <laughs> yes. and other things. You're like, where did this come from? Uh, <laughs> you know, that makes me excited. Um, what we are doing here, um, I will say too, what we're doing with the city, of Pittsburgh and the Forbes Fund around the uh, anti-racism cohort and can we truly create a multi-sector place-based approach to racial equity and track what is possible in 10 months of collaborative commitment in order to make institutional shifts. Uh, I think that excites me. What we're doing here in North Africa and Sous Tunisia and uh, the New Medina in terms of can creating uh, a center to explore global belonging uh, we opened up an eight-bedroom, seven-bath residency center. We have intergenerational programming. Uh, we are creating spaces for mothers' residencies, creative residencies, intellectual residencies, and more. Uh, we curate programs in the region and we create places for our global relationships, uh, no matter what country they're from and no matter where they're from near or far, can connect and convene and look what they want to do together. Uh, that makes me excited. Uh, and the last one is the Empathy Technology Initiative that we've been working on for the last few years, uh, which is uh, as institutions like Google and MIT continually invest in Deep Empathy Lab in what's called the Effective Computing World, uh, which is also known as Emotional Artificial Intelligence, um, there is a deep interest in an investment in the human brain and the human emotion uh, from a neurological perspective. Uh, one of the things in expanding wisdom that we've been doing is that is not the only science uh, that has been exploring um, how human beings say who is my me, who is my we, and who is not. This has existed for over 100,000 years. And if we are going to try to scale uh, empathy, empathy not as an emotion, empathy as more than a brain function, but empathy is a worldview that sees everyone as a degree of self, okay. then what are the technologies across time that have constructed 
that worldview and what are the protocols that construct it? What is the original source code, if you will, digital and analog? And then what are the ways that it's happening in the modern era? And so then we have our different chapters on empathy tech for the aging uh, and end of life, empathy tech for the planet, empathy tech and identity violence, empathy tech and narrative change, and then a future foresight chapter. That makes me excited because an empathetic theory of everything uh, as we're conceptually uh, thinking about it, uh, I think is a very necessary framework that will be benefit uh, to multiple individuals, no matter the sector that they're working in, be, to begin to realize, oh, we need a lighthouse. Uh, I thought I was working in neuroscience. I thought I was working in conflict resolution. I thought I was working in uh, product development. I thought I was working in health and AI and realize, oh, we're all working in how do I understand who I am, who you are, and the relationship between those two spaces and how we can better weave that space and scale it with both ancient technology and emerging technology. Um, that makes me excited. So beautiful. So I, one of the things I really just admire about you, Mark, is your, your ability to transcend some of those negative messages. You, you see them, you point them out, and you, you make them known, but you don't give them the energy that they seek. And, and what I love about how you, what you do from there is you imagine, you see beauty and you imagine possibilities. And I think that that is one of the takeaways that, I, that I've always gotten from you as a friend and colleague, but I, I hope that people are taking away from this conversation on what you're doing with Department of the Future. And in that spirit, I wanted to bring in some of your poetry if you don't mind, there's a poem that, <laughs> that I use all the time in my classes, and it's uh, called The Alchemy of Storytelling that you recorded several years ago, if I remember correctly. And I'd like to play that for our guests so they can hear some of your other creative works to play us out. Crosses and crescent moons, prayer rugs, cell blocks in a ballot box, prisoners in precedence, resistance and resilience, hope in a hurricane, hope in a hangman, hope in a hangnoose. When our children are elders, their children will call this time we live in the era of wounded dreams, when systems openly assassinated imagination. No one tells stories anymore. It's as if we believe gravity is real and unicorns are not. We've swallowed the sugar-coated cyanide that tells us the narratives of the invaders hold more truth than the memories of my grandparents, how damaged our belief systems are. We tell ourselves existence is resistance, not life is affirmation to fight and write back, but not fight and dream forward, to deconstruct empire, but really blueprint ourselves as if we have forgotten that a nation 
is nothing more than a collection of narratives. A community does not make sense of the world through statistics, but stories and bigots are painfully unimaginative. This is why they want to censor our culture. They know they cannot compete with our creativity. So this is for you, who dance, write, speak, dream, love, exhale the world anew, who place starlight in the barrels of rifles and march against darkness, militant sunflowers holding your heart up like a hand grenade, hummingbird in a hurricane with hope strapped to its core like it was C4, we remember. The only reason we're alive is because we had at least one ancestor who refused to die and lived long enough to have children who did the same. This is our genetic inheritance. Remember this. So dance indigo, cultivate brilliance, speak life, name pain, grow dreams, and in times of terror, wage beauty. times of terror wage beauty. Thank you so much for being willing to share that with us. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, family. More than friend, more than colleague, you're family. Yes, we are family. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by iRISE, or the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this particular podcast episode is called Tranquility, and it's by producer Redman. Once again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rage Podcast. We'll see you soon.